Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It's 9.09 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. It is the sixth day of the last month of the year 2022. And this is episode 650 of Bitcoin and. Let's get right into it. Ladies and gentlemen, proof of work is the only viable form of consensus. If you kind of have ever wondered, you know, or needed like a brush up on proof of work and what it is and what the hell are all these people talking about when they talk about POW? This is an article out of Bitcoin Magazine written by Pierre Gildenhaus, I think is how you pronounce it. And it seems to be a pretty good opinion piece on what proof of work actually is. So let's do this. Proof of work is the consensus mechanism that the Bitcoin protocol uses. On a fundamental level, this means that work has to be done to prove the transactions that have transpired on the network are valid. Proof of work functions with specialized computers known as application-specific integrated circuits or ASICs, which input transaction data, information from the previous block header, and a nonce, which is a random number, to guess the result of hash functions. Hash functions are one-directional mathematical equations, so it is impossible to figure out a resulting output from a publicly visible input other than through rapid guessing as these ASICs do. Miners are the people who operate these machines and they want to increase the number of hashes or guesses per second that their devices can produce. And they want to find the cheapest and most reliable source of energy so that this mining becomes profitable for them to pay off the cost of their machines and to make an income to cover their other expenses like overhead and paying people and rent and all that kind of shit. Despite this, it is an incredibly competitive industry as a result of Bitcoin's difficulty adjustment. Depending on how many hashes per second are mining on the network, the complexity and difficulty of the hash function will increase or decrease accordingly so that it takes an average of 10 minutes for each new block to be found across the global network. Blocks are a collection of the transactional data that has been transmitted and are added to a chain of all of the previous blocks on the network and will only be transmitted and added to the blockchain when the answer to the hash function is found. Miners are rewarded for doing this by receiving transaction fees that are paid by users as well as earning a block subsidy which began at 50 Bitcoin, but halves every 2,000 or 210,000 blocks approximately around every four years. The current block subsidy is now 6.25 Bitcoin per block. 
The Bitcoin protocol has a maximum issuance of 21 million Bitcoin, meaning the block subsidy will run out around the year 2140 and all mining rewards will be paid by transaction fee. The fundamental importance of proof of work is one, there is a real world cost to producing Bitcoin. Two, there is a real world cost to defending the integrity and accuracy of Bitcoin. Three, Bitcoin has unforgeable costliness, meaning that it would only be possible to make a fake Bitcoin or a fraudulent Bitcoin transaction through redoing all of the costly proof of work that came before it at a rate that outpaces all of the ongoing proof of work on the network. It has already become too costly and unfeasible to gain a 51% needed for any individual, nation states, or organizations to take control of the network for their benefit and maliciously change the transaction history. This is contrasted by proof of stake, yay, which serves as the consensus mechanism for many shitcoins, digital penny stocks, and the other Ponzi schemes being marketed as alternatives to Bitcoin. Proof of stake works through staking, or more simply put, locking the tokens of that protocol so that they cannot be spent. The number of tokens staked represents your chance of validating a block of transactions. The more tokens staked, the higher the chances of validating a transaction, and thus, the more frequently you would be rewarded. (laughs) What does it sound like? Bearing this in mind, most altcoins were issued to insiders and the development teams before they became publicly available, so major quantities of those tokens were already owned before outsiders could even start acquiring or staking them. According to a study by Sam Callahan, Ethereum had an officially admitted pre-mine of around 20%, which is among the lowest of all shitcoins, meaning that those insiders only had to acquire an additional 31% since public launch in order to change the protocol in whichever way that benefited them. While Bitcoin has a provable 0% pre-mine, the number of Bitcoin owned by any individual or group cannot change the protocol in any way, unlike shitcoins. The only way to change the Bitcoin protocol is through true consensus of 51% of work done for the network, which has historically proved incredibly difficult to achieve and thus leaves the virtues of Bitcoin untouched unless changes prove beneficial for everyone in the network. Research into the block size war is a good way to understand this. The implications of proof of stake are thus. One, proof of stake has no real world cost of production. Two, a majority 51% stake is easily acquired by wealthy individuals, nations, and organizations so they can change the rules of the protocol to benefit themselves. Three, The defense of proof-of-stake tokens relies purely on the trust in everyone with enough capital or enough tokens to not change the protocol. Proof-of-work is a good use of energy as it secures a global monetary network in a way where no one can change the rules or produce more tokens to inflate the supply, meaning that it becomes a financially suitable money to hold for long periods of time. Proof-of-stake is not an adequate replacement to proof of work because it doesn't solve the issue of intervention from malicious parties anywhere in the world at any time. Blockchain is not a new development and financial payment rails can be developed which are much faster than any platform that uses a blockchain. 
Blockchains distribute total information about transactions to thousands of computers globally, thus making it slower than simply distributing balances from a centralized system. The only reason Bitcoin makes use of blockchain is because it needs to be truly decentralized. And with the help of proof of work, it is provably decentralized. However, since the decentralization of proof of stake chains cannot be insured, Using proof-of-stake shitcoins essentially places your trust in a centralized platform which could have malicious intents and thus making it irrelevant to use a proof-of-stake system when more efficient centralized systems such as PayPal, Cash App, or other digital payment platforms exist. If you are comfortable with the risk that your funds can be stopped, censored, or confiscated from you at any time for any reason, or more pertinently that the platform can be revealed to be fraudulent or insolvent, then by all means, make use of centralized systems such as the legacy financial system or digital payments applications. However, using proof of stake shitcoins, which are most often centralized Ponzi schemes that enrich its founders, is wasteful as they are pointless and simply take up storage space that could be used for more important data storage for the future. I will stick to Bitcoin, which is secure, immutable, unseizable, and decentralized with no single point of failure. Bitcoin is money with a finite issuance, so the value of a Bitcoin cannot be stolen through the unnecessary inflation of the supply, as has happened to every fiat currency and to most shitcoins. All right, so that's the end of the article. Kind of hope that gives you, if you don't, you know, there's new people coming into this space all the time, and that it's going to be that way for years, right? That I think that that's one of the things that I don't hear talked about very much, honestly. And I listen to, I listen to many, many <laughs> Bitcoin podcasts, and we talk a lot about a lot of things. But one of the things that we don't talk about, you know, enough, is the fact that newbies are flowing into this space every single day. People that have no concept. If you've been listening to this show for a while and to Bitcoin podcasts before I started this Bitcoin podcast back in, was it September of 2018, by the way, <laughs> just so you know, I went. To, I had to go look and it looks like the birthday of Bitcoin and podcast is September the 3rd, 2018 and has since grown. But <clears throat> If you've been listening to podcasts before even I did this, you know, and I've been doing this for a solid four years, then you probably are very comfortable with proof of work. But do you know who is not comfortable with proof of work? Somebody who just came in today that has no conception of any of this. That flow, that continual inflow into our world is not going to stop. So there's always these educational opportunities that keep cropping up day after day after day. So when I go over something that you're like, God, dude, I know, then that story is not for you. That story is for somebody who just started listening and is trying to figure out what the hell is going on. I had, when I first got in, there was maybe three Bitcoin podcasts available. And two of them had a lot of shit coinery going on. But one of them was done by Trace Mayer, who, if you don't know, basically burned his reputation by 
uh, st- he started shilling Grin at some conference by handing out little pieces of paper that said Grin's gonna 100x or something. I can't remember what the note said, but it was definitely about Grin. And he got lambasted all over Twitter and, you know, any kind of Bitcoin thing. People basically just hosed him down. And I haven't heard a word from Trace Mayer since. But I went back and had to listen to every single one of the Bitcoin Knowledge podcasts by Trace Mayer to try to get planted in what the hell this thing was. Hours and hours and hours and hours so that I could even get my head around the idea of Bitcoin. Subsequently, I've learned more and more and more. But for the newbie coming into the space, especially at this time, it is no wonder that they get sucked into the world of shitcoinery. It's easier to understand lies, untruths, immoral activity, and people being unethical than it is to try to wrap your head around something as basic as proof of work. And as basic as it is, it ain't exactly simple. What the hell's the difficulty adjustment? How does that work? I remember trying to I remember trying to explain this to my wife that this has all all the, the proof of work, the difficulty adjustment, hash power, and all this combined together works out to give a block every 10 minutes. And she's like, why does that fucking matter? And it's like that's a that's an excellent question for the newbie is to control the amount of issuance so that we end up somewhere around 2140 with no more Bitcoin to issue. There's no more emission of the coin. And we want to do it so that that emission stops in 2140. Therefore, hash power, SHA-256, difficulty adjustments, all work together to target the year 2140 as the year that the very last Bitcoin and Satoshi is minted. That's why it's important. It controls the emission rate. And that's important because we have to look at it in terms of what's the inflation rate. And at that point, the newbie will go, I don't even understand inflation in the legacy financial system. Do do you see how difficult this shit is? If you already know all this, congratulations, motherfucker. You have gained 15 years of economic experience inside of just a few years because you had to fight for it. But the newbie, will the newbie fight for it? How many more Ponzi schemes will the newbie enable? For how long? New people are going to be coming into the space until 8 billion people are onboarded, whether into Bitcoin or into any one of the 10,000 shitcoins that are out there. It's up to us to help these people understand why this shit is important. And it is important. Even if Paraguay doesn't understand it, Paraguay legislature has failed to pass a bill regulating Bitcoin mining. Good job, Paraguay. Uh, BTC Casey reports on this one for Bitcoin Magazine. According to a Coindesk report, quote, The industry has found itself in a fight with the local grid operator provider, Onday, and some members of the legislature 
who claim that the grid's infrastructure just can't handle the excess load and that the industry doesn't greatly benefit the local economy and society. Ande had requested that the Paraguayan government raise electricity tariffs by as much as 60% over the industry standard, and the bill would have capped these increases to 15%. Paraguay has become a major location for Bitcoin mining as a result of the country's abundant power. The Itaipu Dam, one of the largest in the world, has proven to be a boon of cheap energy, enabling a rush to absorb this value into the Bitcoin network via mining. If the country seeks to expand on this rush of investment into the energy infrastructure of the country, getting regulation correct is critical to not stifling that. Industry players involved in Paraguay include BitFarms, who has a 10 megawatt facility based there, and POW.RE, Power, who has operations totaling 12 megawatts there. So the particular points involved in this particular story is that the Paraguay legislature did not pass the bill that would have regulated cryptocurrency mining in the country. That bill was originally passed back in July of 2022 and was subsequently vetoed by President Mario Abdo Benitez in August, which sent it back to the legislature. If passed, the bill would have limited outsized charges levied against Bitcoin mining for their energy use. So... Paraguay is kind of stuck between having to kowtow to uh, their power provider and uh, the legislature. So we'll have to see where this goes. It looks like it got close, but yeah, no cigar. No cigar. Close, but no cigar. Now, on to Africa, my other my other continent of interest when it comes to Bitcoin adoption. Bitcoin apps strike launches instant cheap remittances to Africa. <laughs> Woohoo! Nomcios for Bitcoin Magazine. Bitcoin payments app Strike said in a statement on Tuesday that it had launched Send Globally, a new feature that lets United States users instantly and cheaply send money to Africa. Quote, with exorbitant fees to transfer funds in and out of Africa and incumbent providers halting services, payment companies are struggling to operate in Africa and people cannot send money home to their family members, said Jack Maller, Strike founder and CEO, in a statement. Quote, Strike offers an opportunity for people to transfer their U.S. dollars easily and instantly across borders. End quote. The remittance service is initially enabling people in Nigeria, Kenya, and Ghana to receive money from the United States and instantly convert it into their local currency. The feature is made possible thanks to a partnership between Strike and local Bitcoin app Bitnob. Quote, the current financial system is not set up in a way that ensures equal access for people and institutions from Africa, said Bernard Para, founder and CEO of Bitnob, in a statement. Quote, what we have built reduces the pressure on our financial institutions in sourcing USD liquidity. People can now easily exchange value from the United States to people in Africa in the cheapest way possible. We can now save people sending money back home to Africa billions of USD in transfer fees, end quote. Strike and Bitnob bridge the two continents by connecting local financial institutions with the Universal Lightning Network, Bitcoin's overlay protocol for cheaper and faster payments. Quote, now, Using lightning rails under the hood, Strike's Send Globally feature 
provides users in the United States a cheaper, faster, and more innovative way to instantly send payments to Africa per the statement. Quote, payments are instantly converted into Naira, SETI, or shillings and deposited directly into recipient's bank, mobile money, or BitNob account. Strike said it plans to enable Send Global in more African countries in the future. All right, so Africa, if you haven't heard me say it before, I'll, I'll do it again. It's all of South, it, well, it's all of Latin America. It is the entire continent of Africa. It is the Balkans. It is the Baltics. It is all the rest of something that's not served. You know, it's the, the Eastern European countries that are not really looked at all that well in the European Union. And then those uh, things that are outside the European Union that might be considered European, you know? So, uh, you know, I'm thinking like stuff like Hungary and, you know, like little areas like Transylvania and, you know, Croatia and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, that's, that's the adoption that I'm looking for. I'm not really all that concerned with whether or not the United States and UK and the European Union and Australia and New Zealand, I, I don't really give shit one if they adopt this stuff. They're so polluted by Western culture at this point that they don't have the capacity to understand just giving up their power over their populace. Because I, I don't know why. I honestly don't know why anybody would want to spend their time trying to figure out how to control other people. I, I don't get it. But then again, maybe I have to be a psychopath or a sociopath to really understand that that to them is like, you know, me enjoying a stroll through the forest. You know, I love spending my time walking through the forest or thinking about soil or, or how to design a silvo pasture that produces nuts as well as a whole bunch of animal fat and protein. And how do you manage the pasture? I love spending my time thinking about shit like that. You know what I don't do? Spend my time thinking about how to get your money, which is probably to my detriment because <laughs> because vow of poverty over here for podcasting. No, I, well, I mean, that's different. I, I mean, con like taxing you. How can I, how can I just steal money from you? That's different. How can I force you to wear a mask? How can I mandate you to shoot yourself up with something that you don't want to have any part of for whatever reason you don't want to have any part of it? You know, I, to cite, to think how I can psychologically manipulate massive amounts of people to do my bidding is not a valuable use of my time on this planet. And yet I, I guess I just don't understand that for a great many people, it is. And that's a scary thought that there are really people that don't give a shit about anything, but success and controlling some, they don't, I get the feeling half of these people don't even care what it is. They get people to do as long as they get people to do what it is that they want. And it's sad. It seems like such a, a you know, a waste of your valuable time, but you know, we got other fish to fry the path to a Bitcoin economy, decentralized, Bitcoin backed credit. Before I begin caveat, be careful, be careful with this. I'm sure David Soroy writing for Bitcoin magazine, I'm sure Bitcoin magazine and David himself has no intention to rip you off. However, if you are not 
painfully aware of what credit can actually do in the negative state for your life, then when you walk into, you know, getting any kind of loan, even if it's backed by Bitcoin and there's credible proof of reserves and all that kind of stuff, it is a dangerous, dangerous path. I'm not saying not do it. I'm just saying if you are going to do it, two things. You better have a damn fine reason for doing it. If you're doing it to get a loan to buy Christmas presents, you're doing it wrong. Loan for a house. I can accept that. Loan for land. If you're going to be productive with it, I can see that. And two, make damn sure that you read the agreement and under what circumstances you can be hosed down if you do those two things at least, you'll be 80% above and beyond where anybody else entering a credit space is going to be. So let's find out what this one's about. Bitcoin and the dollar are symbiotic, like yin and yang. Bitcoin and dollars provide balance. On the other hand, Bitcoin acts as a counterparty free, decentralized, scarce, digital bearer asset to hedge against excessive credit creation. On the other hand, the free market has an insatiable desire for issuing credit-based dollars, which fill the role of both a stable unit of account and an elastic monetary layer. Thus, the market has competing desires for both a fixed supply assets as well as a monetary unit of account, which is, quote, stable and can expand in response to economic demands. This reality leads us to believe that the path to hyper-Bitcoinization will naturally be paved with an array of credit-based Bitcoin-backed dollars underpinned by Bitcoin collateral. Nick Batia, sorry, Nick Batia describes a similar vision in his book, Layered Money. Put simply, credit money will exist because the market demands it but it will be backed by and therefore limited by Bitcoin's fixed supply also because the market demands it. The net result is a synergistic flywheel and it will begin to form between the demand for Bitcoin and Bitcoin-backed dollars. In 2010, Hal Finney described such a vision where Bitcoin-backed banks could issue their own digital cash currency redeemable for Bitcoin. This idea was based on George Selgin's free banking research, Eric Uke's, or sorry, Yanks, summarizes free banking in his article, Bitcoin Banking Systems. Quote, Imagine a world in which banks are allowed to competitively issue their own private monies and markets were allowed to sort out whether these monies were valuable. This system is built on the assumption that one, information transparency is high, Two, it exists within a competitive market environment, and three, it is subject to minimal regulation. If such a system emerged and was predicated upon voluntary agreement and exchange amongst market actors, who's to say that it would not be just? Unfortunately, none of these three criteria can be met in the existing legacy system, and therefore, we are unlikely to ever see a true Bitcoin-free banking revolution via the legacy system, specifically information transparency. Large financial institutions can and already do issue their own private dollars but they exist on shadow ledgers outside the purview of regulators. The inability to regulate these shadow ledgers prevents any sort of broad information transparency from ever existing in legacy financial systems. Competitiveness 
getting approval for a banking license is a tedious, lengthy, and highly costly endeavor. It is very much restricted to a select few and is therefore not competitive at all. Regulation. Banks have never been more highly regulated. As a result of the 2008 great financial crisis, there is no reason to believe that this will change. Even if it does, there's no assurance that it would last. However, decentralized finance could circumvent these issues in a sly roundabout way, a la Frederick Hayek. While much of DeFi is riddled with grift and gambling, a small subset of it is equipped to usher in the Bitcoin free banking movement. The exact mechanics could vary by protocol and would be defined by smart contracts. However, functionality, sorry, however, functionally, it would operate as Finney originally described. Consider this excerpt from Finney's original forum post and swap in protocol, smart contract, and stablecoin. Quote, different banks, protocols, <clears throat> can have different policies, smart contracts. Some more aggressive, some more conservative. Some would be fractional reserve, while others may be 100% Bitcoin backed. Interest rates may vary. Cash, or stable coins, for, uh, from some banks, protocols, may trade at a discount to that from others. End quote. There are many advantages to building these Bitcoin-free banks, aka protocols, on DeFi over the legacy system. Transparency. Stable coins issued via DeFi would exist on-chain, meaning a transparent immutable ledger. Specifically, outstanding claims and underlying collateral would always be public and cryptographically auditable. Building on-chain is a superior form of proof of reserves. Permissionless. DeFi removes gatekeepers just as free banking envisioned. For builders, anyone technically can create and launch a new protocol. Thus, we could see a Cambrian explosion of Bitcoin-backed credit experiments. For individual users, no inherent restrictions such as KYC would prevent anyone around the world from interacting with the protocol. Non-custodial. With DeFi, Users can maintain control over their own keys subject to the terms of the smart contract instead of entrusting them to centralized entities who may rehypothecate the assets or even honest actors exposed to regulatory capture who may be coerced into giving up the keys. Better terms. By disintermediating banks, users can create superior terms for themselves. One such example is zero as described below which allows users to borrow stablecoins at a 0% interest rate against Bitcoin collateral with no set loan term and strong capital efficiencies. So here's some examples in the wild. <clears throat> Active examples of Bitcoin free banking would be Fuji built on the liquid sidechain as Sovereign's zero protocol built on the RSK sidechain, both of which function as a quasi decentralized borrowing and stablecoin service. Zero specifically allows users to provide collateral in the form of RBTC, a pegged version of Bitcoin on the rootstock RSK sidechain, into a smart contract and subsequently issue dollar-denominated stablecoins to themselves. This sounds bad. The stablecoin technically has or have no cost to issue. Specifically, the protocol has no cost to mint tokens, 
but users are charged an origination fee to borrow, which normally sits at 0.5% and thus zero interest because the stable coins are minted rather than diverted from another use. This is similar to the way free banks functioned when issuing private bank notes against their collateral, except the newly issued tokens have a value pegged to the dollar. Instead of banks issuing private money notes in the legacy system, protocols issue Bitcoin-backed stablecoins. Instead of free banks controlling the collateral and allocation of credit, users individually interacting with the protocol control their own credit creation system. The use of a permissionless distributed credit creation system disempowers singular central entities from reaping privileged benefits from the Cantillon effect and controlling the allocation of new credit money. Outside of Bitcoin itself, stablecoins are unequivocally the killer app in crypto. Alice Gladstein argues that the importance of stablecoins as a humanitarian tool is impossible to deny. The market capitalization of stablecoins strongly affirms the crucial place of stablecoins. Some Bitcoiners struggle to acknowledge the importance of dollars as it can seem antithetical to the Bitcoin ethos. However, Bitcoin-backed credit makes these ideas compatible. When stablecoins are minted as claims against Bitcoin collateral, this process is effectively a short against the dollar. Over a long time frame, we would expect the value of Bitcoin to increase as the dollar decreases in purchasing power, thus making it easier to pay back the debt. This is the premise of Pierre Rochard's article, Speculative Attack. The key component <clears throat> of Bitcoin-backed credit is the ability to create a synergy and flywheel between dollars and Bitcoin. Specifically, as the market demand for censorship-resistant dollars increases, it consequently drives demand for more Bitcoin collateral to be purchased and locked into smart contracts to mint stablecoins and meet that demand. Separately, as organic demand for issuing Bitcoin-backed increases, such as borrowing against it at 0% interest rate, it leads to the creation of more liquidity of censorship-resistant stablecoins. Both censorship-resistant stablecoins and loans against Bitcoin collateral have proven to have significant demand. Tying these two high-demand products together creates a synergy between dollar and Bitcoin advocates that mutually perpetuate growth of the other. Due to Bitcoin's limited scripting capabilities, projects such as Zero and Fuji currently must be built on Bitcoin sidechains that provide for smart contract functionality. The trade-off is that users must lock their Bitcoin in a federated multi-signature address and receive a Bitcoin derivative known as RBTC or LBTC. In the interim, this is trust limitation that is not perfectly aligned with the Bitcoin ethos. However, we can use these federated models to prove product market fit while exploring research around trustless options such as drive chains and validity rollups. Validity rollups are particularly interesting as a way to create a trustless two-way peg that could one day replace the functionality of federations and circumvent the current trust assumptions of sidechains without altering the core tenets of the Bitcoin base layer. A detailed analysis of validity rollups on Bitcoin can be found here, and a link is given. Alternatively, videos discussing ZK rollups on Bitcoin are here and here, both of which are links. An eventual future could include creating a trust-minimized bridge between stablecoins minted on a validity rollup that are then subsequently used for payments on the Lightning Network. This could be enabled 
by the developments of Tarot and RGB, which allow the issuance of tokens onto the Lightning Network. Currently, the vision for Tarot and RGB is to bring well-established stablecoins like USDT and USDC onto Lightning. However, the ability to send Bitcoin-backed stablecoins, which are more censorship-resistant, and drive demand to the underlying Bitcoin collateral instead of centralized fiat stablecoins across the Lightning Network is more consistent with the Bitcoin ethos and would be the next evolution of creating a more decentralized Bitcoin circular economy. <clears throat> the advent of Bitcoin-backed stablecoins bridges these technolo technologies together in a world which allows hodling Bitcoin forever while getting the short to medium term benefit of a Bitcoin backed dollar unit of account with the superior payment rails of Lightning. Rather than working against the dollar in its ubiquitous acceptance as a unit of account, decentralized Bitcoin backed credit works with it to build a superior system with Bitcoin at its base. On the surface, Bitcoin-backed credit using DeFi allows Bitcoiners to get dollar-denominated loans without having to sell their Bitcoin in a KYC-free and non-custodial manner. However, that would be hugely understating its importance. On a deeper level, Bitcoin-backed credit will be the incentivized bridge to hyper-Bitcoinization. It will facilitate a transition from dollars to Bitcoin-backed dollars to eventually completely new Bitcoin-backed credit instruments altogether as the dollar fades into irrelevance. By breaking down the barriers and opacity of credit creation using DeFi, we will disempower centralized authorities' monopoly on money creation. Simply being able to have and to transfer Bitcoin, the asset, is not sufficient. We must also decentralize the financial services and money creation layers. If we ignore these monetary layers, then we regulate Bitcoin to a life of gold 2.0 in truly all the worst ways. A world in which central authorities use the ever-present demand for credit to hijack our monetary sovereignty through credit. A world in which central authorities use the ever-present demand for credit to hijack our monetary sovereignty through custody. The transition to Bitcoin DeFi will shift the paradigm from top-down centralized money creation to distributed bottom-up. Specifically, individuals will have the option to become their own credit creators. The banks and central authorities will no longer be able to unilaterally dictate how credit is created and where it is allocated. This will create a distributed model of capital allocation with an infinite number of isolated experiments as opposed to a few centralized allocators, which more properly reflects the desires of the market. The importance of decentralized Bitcoin-backed stablecoin loans via DeFi cannot be understated. It is the bridge that will link disparate parts of the ecosystem, store value, credit, smart contracts, and payments together with Bitcoin as a singularity. I do not believe Bitcoin will reach maximum success without this realization. Thank you, David Saroy. That, on the surface, is in a nutshell. Okay, if you've been listening to Bitcoin stuff for a while and reading articles, Unless you're just an idiot savant, you, you didn't grab 80% of that. As I was reading it, I might've caught 
70% of it is still, as I'm reading along with these sentences, I'm like, that sounds bad. This sounds bad. This sounds bad. But one of the pins that got unlocked at the very end of this article was the notion that I could create the credit instrument myself for my own usage without a third party intermediary where that credit is backed by my Bitcoin, which I can prove by signing a message and then depositing it into a smart contract. And then that smart contract has the ability and only the ability to mint as many stable coins of my choice against that Bitcoin. Now, the problem is how do I connect the stable coin to the outside world? Okay, that, see, what I'm, what I'm getting at here is that you think it's bad for a newbie to come in and try to figure out the difficulty adjustment. Have a newbie read this shit. This is, this is, at, this is high finance, right? And it doesn't mean that I agree with the notion. I'm just giving it to you as David Soroy in Bitcoin Magazine has it written. I am not at all, I'm not at all excited about this thing that, that they're suggesting. But some of, the me- some of the mechanisms that are described like a flywheel between Bitcoin and stablecoin issuance is interesting. It's interesting, but remember, remember where we're at. We're at the fall of FTX, supposedly decentralized finance or DeFi. And as you'll see in the later parts of the show, we've got other DeFi people, even one of the oldest ones about to die. I'm not really, you know, as from a marketing perspective, I think we've burnt DeFi to the ground pretty well, pretty well. I wouldn't trust anybody saying DeFi at this point saved my life. It's it, the reputation of DeFi is so burned and so ground to a powder and buried as ash under a fucking sycamore tree that the only way out is to come up with a new word. Some of this stuff that's in this article makes sense. But all of this stuff in this article has the power to be abused in ways that are just as bad, if not horrifically more than the FTX, Terra Luna, Celsius shit. Be careful. Everybody wants your Bitcoin. If you don't have your Bitcoin in your own possession, guarded by your own private keys, you are doing it wrong. If you've got a little bit, a little bit on Cash App, I get it, I do. I won't sweep it until it hits, you know, whatever. I'm not going to say what it is that I wait to because why? But at one point or another, there becomes a balance in fiat, you know, value, quote unquote, that I get uncomfortable and I sweep it into private keys with which I am comfortable. But everybody wants your Bitcoin. And if you've got a majority of your Bitcoin on somebody else's platform, they have your Bitcoin and they're looking at this and they're frothing at the mouth. They are looking at DeFi 2.0 with a credible explanation as to to how to make people think we're acting in an ethical manner after this entire FTX bullshit. And you know what's going to happen? More people are going to lose their money because of shit like this. 
I understand that what David's saying is coming from a place of goodness and solidness, but there's every way that a human mind can game the system to turn something incredibly beautiful into something horrifically, horrifically deadly. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled, ladies and gentlemen. All right, let's see. Where are we going? Let's get, yeah, fuck. This is going to be a long one today. So, you know, strap in, ladies and gentlemen. We got this one from, who is it? Who is it? Oh, BTC Casey is writing this for BTC Magazine. African Bitcoin mining firm Gridless raises $2 million in funding round led by Stillmark and Block Incorporated. Gridless, a Bitcoin mining company that is focused on rural communities in East Africa, has raised $2 million in seed investment round by St- led by Stillmark and Block Incorporated, according to a press release. The investment is intended to support further expansion of Bitcoin mines across Africa. In regards to this mission, the CEO of Gridless, Eric Herzman, said, quote, Africa needs affordable electricity. Our work in supporting renewable energy mini-grid developers fills the gap, helping developers expand faster, be more sustainable, and serve thousands of households. This investment and the high caliber of partners that are coming alongside us means that we can accelerate our rollout, knowing that we have both the capital and strategic support required, end quote. In the first year of operation, Gridless has entered five different project contract pilots in rural Kenya outside or alongside Hydrobox, an African hydroelectric energy company. Three of these pilots are now operational. Gridless finances the construction and managers or manages the operation of the data centers in these rural communities. <clears throat> the company has now set its sights on expansion into other areas of Eastern Africa. In regards to their decision to lead this funding round alongside Block, Elise Colleen, managing partner at Stillmark, stated, quote, Stillmark is focused on investing in companies that are helping to advance the Bitcoin ecosystem in ways that offer sustainable value and solutions to many. Gridless does this by bringing a socially and environmentally conscious approach to Bitcoin mining, one that provides tangible benefits by way of access to electricity for communities in rural parts of East Africa, end quote. Thomas Templeton, lead for Bitcoin mining and wallet at Block Incorporated, explained the company's view as well, uh, adding that Gridless represents a close strategic alignment with our vision of ensuring the Bitcoin network increasingly leverages clean energy in combination with Bitcoin computational centers around the world, end quote. According to the press release, in 2020, more than 50% of Africans were without electricity. Gridless identifies Bitcoin mining as playing a pivotal role in revolutionizing Africa's access to cheap and reliable electricity. The release corroborates Gridless's goal of increasing this access as it explains, quote, the electricity generated from these sites is prioritized for community electrification and to support community uplift businesses such as containerized cold storage for local farmers, battery charging stations for electric motorcycles, and public Wi-Fi points. After those needs are met, the remaining electricity capacity is used to power the Bitcoin computational mining data center. Okay, so that's that one from BTC. Casey, again, we're talking about Africa. That's a continent that I'm I'm laser focused on watching Bitcoin development happen in. Now, the way these guys are doing it is 
interesting insofar as that they are going in and they are trying to oversupply electricity to African towns in the rural communities. Oversupply. Why? So they can buy that oversupply cheap and run Bitcoin miners off of it, which gives them the incentive to help build power infrastructure. That's one way to do it. The other way to do it is to go out in the middle of nowhere that's, well, basically in, in bumfucked Egypt, BFE as we like to call it in West Texas, set up next to a geothermal site that nobody wants to be live by, a waterfall nobody wants to live by, whatever. Something, somewhere nobody wants to live out there and you set up Bitcoin mining and you set up power infrastructure and generation and you mine Bitcoin and that Bitcoin mining center will probably attract a couple of people that don't mind Bitcoin. Why? Because I would like to serve them lunch out of my lunch truck. So I will drive my happy ass out there and maybe I decide that I'm making a good enough living that I need a house there. Yeah, that's how a lot of times that's how cities get built. In fact, most of the times that's how the cities get built. Not because of energy or electricity in this, in this fashion, but because of some resource that nobody else wanted to live by, but that's harvestable and you provide goods and services to the people that are harvesting that resource and you're not directly connected to that resource. You feed them lunch and you make dinner or I don't know, you set up a brothel, I, you know, a bar so that they can go get hammered at. Just look at the old West. That's how all these towns were built. Nobody wanted to be in a place at the time where gold was being mined unless you were selling picks and shovels. And all of a sudden, boom towns just grew up, grew up everywhere, all the way to the Pacific coast. You know, from west of the Mississippi, all the way to California, and all the way up through, you know, Western Washington, you've got boom towns everywhere because of that. So that's another way to do it. But at the end of the day, what we're looking at is the Bitcoinization of the continent of Africa. And I'm hoping that it paces itself faster than the Silk Road out of China. Michael Saylor decides to dunk all over FTX's uh, fiasco. Michael Saylor on the FTX fiasco says, it was unethical and illegal from the very beginning. Savannah Fortis, Cointelegraph, Break it down. In a recent interview with Michael Saylor, the MicroStrategy Executive Chairman and Major Bitcoin Bull shared his perspective on the fall of the FTX empire. Saylor said that for years, there has been a low-grade boiling guerrilla war between the BTC community opposite the crypto community over industry practices such as what he repeatedly calls shitcoinery. In Saylor's perspective, Sam Bankman-Fried was the poster child for shit coinery. Quote, there is something ethically broken about being able to issue your own unregistered security. Sam and most of the people in the crypto world were always guilty of the sin of shit coinery, end quote. He attributes such behavior to his perceptions of the crypto community's inherent problems, which are greed, arrogance, and foolishness. <clears throat> From there, Sailor forayed into what he calls the diabolical twist in the FTX story which entailed SBF generating billions off of air tokens and issuing himself billion dollar loans off of user funds, the real money. While many 
have debunked the story of SBF and his mismanagement of funds, the community on Reddit applauded Saylor for his clear explanation of the situation, along with a straightforward comparison of BTC. One user wrote that although they don't care for Saylor otherwise, his explanation was one of the best in the entire space. This was not Saylor's first comment surrounding the FTX scandal. In the early days of the unraveling, he was one of the first, along with Binance CEO Shengpeng Zhao, to urge the community to practice self-custody. The entire crypto community awaits a December 13th hearing, which will investigate the collapse of the exchange. According to the committee leading the hearing, they expect SBF and associated individuals to appear in court to testify on this date. More on that later. First of all, let's run the numbers. CNBC futures and commodities, oil and all everything's taking a hit today. Again, again. West Texas Intermediate is down 3.43%, under $75, people. Remember, remember. What Biden said, I'm not a fan of Brandon, okay? I'm not. But he said he was going to buy this shit back at 75 bucks a barrel and people fucking laughed. What, oh, Lord have mercy, breaking, Morgan Stanley cut 2% of staff today, according to sources. I won't get into, I won't get into that one. Um, Where was I? Yeah, oil and $75 refill of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Where are we on the strategic Stanley petroleum reserve? Cut 2% Let's of staff find out today. I've got this one sources, from I won't United get it, States I won't get Energy Information um, Administration, and it is where a was chart. It? Yeah, oil and $75 of refill of crude of strategic oil in the strategic petroleum, petroleum reserve. Where are and we? Yeah, Brandon on the strategic petroleum reserve. Okay, Let's find as far out. As SPR is concerned. In fact, we have not seen this level of Strategic Petroleum Reserve since 1983, ladies and gentlemen. 1983, that's 40 years ago. We haven't seen Strategic Petroleum Reserves this low in 40 years. And then a few months back, Brandon says, well, I'm just going to buy it back at 75. What's going on here? All of a sudden, he's got $75 oil. No, uh, no, Brandon does not really know what the hell's going on. He can't use the bathroom by himself at this point. And he certainly doesn't have a crystal ball. So I ask you, how the hell has Brandon been able to lower the prices to $75 to make him look like he's some kind of oracle? I ask you... If you have the ability to answer, please do so through Podcasting 2.0 and do it through a boostagram, which I will read at the end of the vital statistics thing. Now, uh, going back to the rest of the futures, Brent Norsey is not doing well at all. 3.82% to the downside, $79.52 a barrel. Natural gas was down even more, but right now it's down 1.58% to $5.48 per thousand. Gasoline down another 2.5% to $2.14 a gallon. That's on average, by the way. Uh, metals, eh, mixed. 
and honestly not doing good. Gold is up a scant 0.14% to 1783 bucks. Silver is down a quarter of a point to $22.37. Platinum is down a full point. Copper is up half a point. Palladium down one third of a point. Ag is mixed. Biggest loser today looks to be wheat. 1.42% to the downside. Biggest winner, soybean up 1.37. And Dow is down a whole point. S&P down a point and a third. NASDAQ is down a point and three quarters. S&P mini is down just over a point. The hell's going on? Let's see. Is there any other breaking news from CNBC? I don't see it. So, oh, other than the fact that Boeing's last 747 is rolling out of the factory after 50 years of production. Just so you know. Now, real money is at $16,962. We have 14,250 transactions waiting on nine blocks to clear. We have a $326.1 billion market cap, and that is 2.65% of gold's entire market cap. I remember when it was 13%. That actually was a number. We've gone from 13% of gold's market cap to 2.65. If you can survive it, you got balls and spine, just saying. And you can purchase 9.2 ounces of a shiny metal rock with your one Bitcoin, of which there are 19,225,860.92 of, and 5,070.89 of that is in the Lightning Network, valued at $86 million even, being run over 15,991 nodes, sporting 76,318 payment channels, and 68.8% of all that shit's being run over TORS, associated 11,242 nodes. That's going to do it for Vitals. Welcome to part two of the news that you can use. Boostagram time. I've got some. Mr. Man, one, two, three, four, five, 12,345 sat says, have you gone sledding yet? How about doing donuts? No and no. Although sledding is getting close. I mean, we're getting close. It's got to be, you know, I'd like to see a little bit more snow on the ground. Uh, we've got like a small hill that's, you know, in a park that's close by. And I could probably find some more, you know, fascinating places to go sledding as we are in the Palouse region of Eastern Washington and ain't nothing but grade up here, bro. Uh, letter 6173 with Striper Boo says, SBF walks free while Ross Ulbricht rots in prison. It's fucking disgusting. Please consider going to freeross.org and sending him a letter or on-chain donation this holiday season. Yeah, you know what? Freeross.org might be a good place. Uh, giving, you know, especially just writing him a letter, telling him how you feel, you know, um, I'm sure that helps. Donations help too, but I, I can't, I wouldn't actually put one over the other at this point for a kid that is in jail for the rest of his natural born days for building a website that other people used and did stuff with. That would be like me delivering a death threat over Facebook to somebody directly and then going out and killing them and then taking Mark Zuckerberg and throwing him in prison for building a website that allowed me to perpetrate the crime, find my victim, and figure out through that website 
how I was going to do it, what time that she or he was home, all that kind of shit. All that information is, you can find that shit on Facebook. You can. You can, you can organize all manner of, of, of illegal marches that, that do damage to buildings. It was done when Trump was elected. How come Mark Zuckerberg's not in jail? for building a website that facilitated criminal activity. That's why Ross Ulbricht is in jail. And for those of you assholes out there who are saying, he, he tried to solicit, trying to get somebody killed. No, he didn't. Those charges were dismissed. He never did that. Ever. Not once. Ever. Forever, period. I'm just, I don't know what else to tell these people. He never hired or try to hire somebody to kill somebody. All of those charges were dropped because there was no evidence that it occurred. So therefore he did not perpetrate that. He built a website and people sold drugs on it. Mark Zuckerberg built a website and people facilitated the ability to do public damage at scale to public infrastructure and buildings. And he's walking free. Why isn't Ross? Again, freeross.org if you want to help. Uh, We'll see. Saints and Sats with 1,000 Sats says, yep, that was all the news I could use. (laughs) Thanks, buddy. I appreciate that. And we're going to get back into Bit Happens 1331. He's correcting me because, like I was saying, I, I may have gotten it wrong, you know, so please correct me. I'm being corrected. And here it is with 108 sats. The idea was off. I'm too maxi for shit coins. Crazy it up a notch because this is real important. I'm saying knowledge of a Bitcoin future had existed decades or more before its emergence. Think quantum like time travel. Weird beyond our conceptions. This mysterious... Oh, wait a minute. He may not want me to read this. It says for you, David. Hold on. Uh... I don't see any reason why I can't read it, but I'm I'm gonna hold back on that. You know why? Or not what? What? But I'm just going to I'm I'm just I'm just gonna hold off because he says specifically for you. Um, I'll go into his reply that he made to his boost that says a quick thought experiment. In 1912, J.P. Morgan just said only gold is real money. Everything else is just debt. Same year, insurance pays him for the Titanic going down, taking certain folks who were probably meant to attend Jekyll Island that very next year. Fate directors of mankind type people deciding things like gold-backed dollars, for instance. Let's hop in our DeLorean and forward 100 years exactly to 2012. What do you see? Julian Assange of WikiLeaks gets BTC. Mt. Gox is in court. John McAfee is deported. Okay, I, 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 now I get what you're saying. And I am not at all, I am not at all uh, immune to wild flights of fancy because sometimes they're not wild flights of fancy. 80%. Actually, you know what? I'm going to go forward. I'm going to go even more than that. 99% of all the stuff that is real in the universe that actually exists, we cannot see 
or detect in any way, shape, form, or fashion, yet we know it's out there. Dark matter is one of them. Dark energy is another one. And there's all manner of stuff that ex- that exists that, that I, I just know exists, like parallel dimensions, parallel universes. You know, it, time travel, I'm not so sure if there's an ability to do that. Otherwise, we might have already seen it, but I'm not ruling it out. I'm not ruling it out, okay? Everything is on the table for me now because existence and the creation of the universe or the creation that is the universe is so complex and so drastically misunderstood that I cannot make any statement as to whether or not ghosts exists or that I have a soul or that there are spirits or angels or demons and devils and God. I can't say there's no proof either way. So my friend, bit happens 1331, can't disagree with you. These are, these are good ideas. What if? And the implications are, are, implications are cool. You know what else is cool? The implication that Sushi Swap has only 1.5 years of Treasury Runway left. Oh, no. Juan Sun from Cointelegraph tells us what we already knew was going to happen years ago. According to a new proposal dated 6th of January, Jared Gray, CEO of decentralized exchange SushiSwap, disclosed that the project's treasury has less than one and a half years of runway left and the significant deficit in the treasury threatens Sushi's operational viability requiring an immediate remedy. Gray explained that SushiSwap's annualized operating expenses amounted to roughly $9 million in October. What are you, what are you spending your money on? However, that has since been reduced to around a mere $5 million. Quote, we made the reduction possible by renegotiating infrastructure contracts, scaling back underperforming or superfluous dependencies, and instituting a budget freeze on non-critical personnel and infrastructure. To remedy the situation, Gray proposed setting SushiSwap's CanPi, or the amount of fees diverted to its treasury, to 100% for one year or until new tokenomics are implemented. This would come at a cost to sushi stakers. No, you think? Who typically earn the trading and protocol fee reward in return for locking their tokens. What does this sound like? In addition, Gray illustrated why it wasn't feasible to simply use sushi tokens to fund expenses because they're fucking worthless. Quote, however, as previously stated, sushi is currently near full distribution of its token supply and has yet to capitalize on opportunities to diversify its treasury and provide the necessary liquidity for ongoing operations. End quote. Moving forward, Gray called for the implementation of a holistic token model that allows for the rebuilding of the treasury and delivers value for all stakeholders while reducing the fiscal liability carried solely by the protocol. Yeah, motherfucker, people in hell want ice water too, pal. The CEO then warned that such measures will take time to implement and may not come online until the end of the third quarter of 2023. Like similar projects, SushiSwap has been hit hard by the ongoing crypto winter, with its sushi tokens losing 79% of its value over the past year. 
It is currently ranked 10th of the most popular on the most popular decentralized exchange with a 24-hour trading volume of $42 million. Sushi swaps going to go down and it's going to take all of the people that invested in sushi tokens down with them. See, if you don't remember, about three summers ago, uh, sushi swap kind of burst onto the scene. I don't know if it was created right then or or not. I don't know. But I do know that you didn't hear about sushi swap until about three or four summers ago. I think it was three summers ago. And it was like right at the beginning. It was like in the spring. And that started everybody a buzz about DeFi. And we've seen where that has all gone. Just three years later. It hasn't been that long, y'all. And now sushi swap itself the progenitor of this entire notion of bullshit yield farming is going to go under. And this whole tokenomics thing, everything that this guy said is all bullshit. And if you can't see that, you're going to lose money in something else. I'm, I am here to try to guide you and point out signposts on the road that says, no guardrail or hole in the road, or this is where alien abductions occur. So don't go there. That's what I'm here for. And we've got even more. Uh, well, actually, let me do this one. Let me do this one first uh, because yeah, we'll do that one last. Now, Sushi Swap that brought it all in is one of the last people to tank. Why? Well, let's get into a couple of these things. United States Representative Maxine Waters has now insisted that Sam Bankman-Fried attend the FTX hearings on Capitol Hill. Jason Nelson, Decrypt.co. Democratic Congresswoman Maxine Waters returned to Twitter today to more forcefully compel FTX founder SBF to attend the December 13th House Committee hearing on the collapse of FTX. Quote, it is imperative that you attend our hearing on the 13th and we are willing to schedule continued hearings if there is more information to be shared later. End quote. The representative from Cali, District 43, initially reached out to Bankman Fried on December the 2nd, first thanking the former CEO for being candid about the collapse of FTX. The invitation to testify was not a demand nor a subpoena. Quote, once I have finished learning and reviewing what happened, I would feel like it is my duty to appear before the committee and explain. I'm not sure that will happen by the 13th, but when it does, I will testify. Yeah. Yeah, whatever, dude. That's what he said. It appears that Waters' patience with Bankman-Fried is wearing out as the Congresswoman did not mince words about the importance of Bankman-Fried uh, coming to Washington to testify. And her tweet is as such, at SBF underscore FTX. Based on your role as CEO and your media interviews over the past few weeks, it is clear to us that the information you have thus is far and sufficient for testimony. Quote, as you know, the collapse of FTX was harmed over or has harmed over 1 million people, Waters said. The, uh, your testimony would not only be meaningful to members of Congress, but it is also critical to the American people. End quote. The back and forth between the Congresswoman and Bankman Fried was, has drawn significant commentary from crypto Twitter. Quote, Miss Waters, with all due respect, 
Let's stop flirting with the inevitable outcome and cut the crap, tweeted BitMEX VP Jania Malachenko. Quote, begin the process of extradition to bring him back to U.S. soil where he can be tried and properly judged for his gross and fraudulent misconduct. Send a subpoena. Whether or not Bankman-Fried shows up on December the 13th to testify remains to be seen, but Bankman-Fried has a long line of officials and regulators waiting in the wings to speak with the former billionaire. Hmm. So he's denied, he, like I said before, you know, we read before, uh, he's not, he doesn't want to go. And uh, Waters, her patience is wearing thin and she really wants him to go. This is going to be interesting to see what happens. I have no clue what's going to happen. I don't. I, I don't know if, I mean, if he just flat out denies, I would say that they would subpoena his ass and go forcefully remove him from the Bahamas. But honestly, are they watching him close enough to know if he's still in the Bahamas? Because as the news tightens, people get squirmy. And when people get squirmy, they have a tendency to end up in Abu, Abu Dhabi or Dubai or some other far-flung you know, nation that doesn't mind, you know, fugitives, harboring fugitives every once in a while because all these places do. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be interesting to find out. But as the FTX journey continues, so does the destruction in its wake. Nexus Mutual has been hit with $3 million in Ethereum exposure to orthogonal trading default. Orthogonal Trading is the company here. Liam Kelly, Decrypt.co. The FTX dominoes continue to tumble as Nexus Mutual revealed roughly $3 million in losses due via a long string of contiguous events to the exchange's collapse last month. The crypto insurance protocol announced that it expects to take a loss of around 2,461 Ether, which is roughly $3 million, due to orthogonal trading defaulting on its loans. The two projects were both borrowing from M11 Credit's wrapped Ethereum lending pool built on Maple Finance. Maple Finance is a lending platform that lets firms like M1 or M11 Credit allocate capital and spin up their very own lending facility. Yay, where did we hear that before? in that piece by Bitcoin Magazine. I'm telling you, we have to be careful with this shit, no matter what's backing who. Orthogonal's default was extensive. The majority of its loans, roughly $31 million in total, were in M11 Credit's USDC pool. The firm also defaulted on another $5 million in M11's WETH pool, the same one that Nexus was also drawing from. These funds were due to the trading firm's direct exposure to FTX. Nexus first voted to move 15,384 Ethereum into M11 Credit's lending pool back in August, earning 99.09% approval from the community. The insurance protocol has already initiated the 10-day wait period to withdraw these funds, but it will suffer some losses. Nexus said that the losses amount to roughly 1.5% to 2.6% of the project's assets and will not affect its day-to-day -day operations. Though defaults on Maple Finance are not entirely uncommon, allegations that orthogonal trading misrepresented its exposure to FTX are unusual. 
Both Maple and M11 allege that the trading firm misstated its exposure to the collapsed crypto exchange, with Maple noting that they have been operating while effectively insolvent. Earlier on Tuesday morning, the firm explained that it had been working closely with a potential strategic investor. Yeah, there's always someone to help cover its liabilities. Unfortunately, we were unable to match the timing of any fresh funding with a repayment date on our $10 million loan, the note read. Orthogonal trading isn't the only firm to get hit by the FTX contagion. BlockFi, Gemini, Genesis are just a few of the big names to either file for bankruptcy or halt operations due to the implosion of the FTX crypto empire. Oh, whatever, dude. It was all going to die anyway. Uh, where are we at? Well, we're at 75 minutes, so that's going to do it for the morning roundup. Your Tuesday's Dad Says Jokes. What do Santa elves listen to whilst they work? Rap music. You know, if you want to support the show, Podcasting 2.0 is the way to go. You can do that with Fountain App. I love Fountain App. And no, they're not a sponsor, but it is my daily driver. And with it, you can give me boostograms where you can send me messages like people like that happens. And, you know, my good friend Bubba and... Uh, Pitar, when he decides to grace my presence with his presence, uh, I always miss Pitar because he's like one of the one of well, he's one of my favorites, along with the rest of you guys that that are always in the boostograms. Again, you know that's the uh, as far as podcasting is concerned, podcasting 2.0 is the only way to deliver value for value. There's no there's nothing like being able to send me less than a penny because you think that's what my minute of telling you the news was worth. And that's okay. If I could get 10,000 people to do that, I'm totally good with sub penny donations on a minute over minute basis. I mean, when that shit adds up y'all. So if you want to help me out and you can't do it financially, word of mouth, spread the show around. It's like manure. It doesn't do any good. If it's all sitting in a pile in the corner of the yard, you got to get a pitchfork on that son of a bitch and throw it out. You know, you got to spread that shit around, man. So yeah, give me word of mouth. You suggest the show to friends. Uh, give me a five-star rating on Apple uh, podcast reviews uh, on iTunes. It, it has, I haven't actually asked for that in a while. And when I don't ask for that, I, I, I don't see as much growth right? On a month over month basis. So I'll ask you again, if you can't donate, you know, like actual Satoshis or you don't feel like you want to, which is understandable, your time is just as valuable as your Satoshis, right? So if you do that for me, it helps. And just so you know, uh, I doubled listenership of last year to this year. The year before that, I doubled listenership from the year before that to last year. And the year before that, I doubled it. So I've seen nothing but 2X every year over year. I'd like to get that to 10X for next year. And I can't do it without your help because I am not a marketing guru. And I, I just, 
I don't have any faith in the legacy marketing and advertising system, especially after I got my mind poisoned by, <laughs> by Adam Curry and podcasting 2.0. And I've been deep down that rabbit hole for well over a year and a half, if not a full two years. I can't remember when I started, when I generated my uh, RSS feed to include the value block, but it's been well over a year, at least a year and a half. And I, I just can't see, I don't want to look back. That's, that's the thing. I don't want to look backwards. I don't want to have to draw off of legacy financial bullshit. And that includes marketing and advertising models and all the rest of that crap. I want to move forward. And value for value is the only way to cut out the leeches and the parasites that are on the systems of me being able to produce content and deliver it to you and to people that you want to share it with. And also, I keep forgetting to thank you for the people that are making clips of this show. Thank you. I, I, I go back and I start listening to them. I go, why did they clip this? And I'll listen to the clip and I'm like, wow, I was kind of on fire there. Or I will get, you know, yeah, I really need to do that better. That, you know, needs to be better. So I'm actually listening to the clips, uh, not you know, not for vanity, but to try to figure out what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong. And I figure if you're taking the time to build a clip out of this show, then it's probably something that I should know. And podcasting 2.0 is the only way to go to be able to do that. Do you see the power? Do you understand the power? We're leaving the sinking ship and we have gotten off that shit not a second too soon i'll see you on the other side this has been bitcoin and and i'm your host david bennett i hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon have a great day